A year after I left the unit, a 600-pound bomb was dropped onto friendly troops in Iraq, and the two most severely wounded Delta Force operators were my two medics. The operators saved their life. It was a good year after I had left, and the sergeant major of the command came and found me. I was back at the 82nd Airborne Division Clinic at the time, and he says, hey, doc, come here. I need to tell you something. Remember that program you started when you were here? Well, it just saved your two medics' lives. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome former Navy SEAL and retired Army Colonel, Dr. Robert Adams. He graduated from the Naval Academy and then became a Navy SEAL officer for 12 years. Subsequently, he was awarded an Army Health Profession Scholarship and attended the Wake Forest University School of Medicine. Dr. Adams completed residency training at Madigan Army Medical Center and is board certified in family medicine. Following residency, Dr. Adams served in many important Army medicine roles, such as the elite U.S. Army Delta Force Command Surgeon, and in medical leadership positions with the 82nd Airborne Division at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. After a 30-plus year career in the military, Dr. Adams established a successful private family medicine practice where he is semi-retired and works part-time. You can read his full bio at wardockspodcast.com. Today, we're privileged to welcome former Navy SEAL and retired Army Colonel, Dr. Robert Adams to Wardocs. Bob, thanks for joining us today. Doug, it is an absolute delight to be here. Thank you. Your background is a little unusual from the normal pathway of military physicians and that after graduating from the Naval Academy, you served as a Navy SEAL for almost 15 years before attending medical school. What led to your decision to make that major career change? But just to correct the numbers, it was about 12 years, 15 years in the Navy, but 12 of that was in the SEAL teams, active and reserve. But it, it really boiled down to the fact that post-Vietnam was a bad time for the military, similar to some of the things we're seeing going on now. There's cutting back on monies and resources to the military, such that, you know, here I was a commander of a SEAL team without enough uh, money to buy guns or buy ammunition for my guns. I had Korean War era parachutes. I had TNT instead of plastic explosives. It was left over. It was so old, it was oozing nitroglycerin, which makes it a little dangerous to handle. You know, I kept looking around going, well, when are they going to fix this? And since there wasn't any real expectation of government switching around and giving the military its its due. I said, well, you know, why don't I just transfer to the reserves and I'll seek my fortune elsewhere. And you know, if there's a war, they'll call me. And so that's exactly what I did. After I had done my initial five-year tour, I said, time to go, switched to the reserve SEAL teams and went elsewhere to get a, a master's in business and do some business things. But I got to tell you, I hadn't been out of the active service six months before I picked up a phone called back. So, whoops, excuse me. They don't have free vacation out here and they don't have free health care. And now you need to let me back in. And they said, well, Lieutenant, lo- lo- appreciate the phone call, but we're still drawing down. We don't need more Navy SEALs. Stay where you are. We'll call you if we need you. And and that's literally what, what kicked me over the edge. And I... One of the reasons I later went to med school was I wanted to get back in uniform. It wasn't going to happen as a Navy SEAL. 
So you then attended Wake Forest University School of Medicine on an Army Health Profession scholarship. What made you decide to switch services from the Navy to the Army? That was really easy, and it, it's, a, it's got its own sort of funny story attached to it. You can't apply for a military scholarship to go to medical school until you've been accepted by a school. As soon as that happens, bam, you fire off a, a scholarship request, and it's a first-come, first-serve. So I, I got accepted, fired off a request to the Army and the Navy saying, let me you know, cover my costs because it's going to be expensive. And the Army said, here's a four-year scholarship, and the Navy said, here's a three-year. I went, what? I had two children at the time, and med school was Wake Forest University. And um, you know, I put on my dress blues, went to Washington, D.C., and held those two uh, contracts in my hands. Guys, you know, I'm going to go to medical school, and Congress is going to pay for four years. You need to match the Army's offer. And they said, nope, you don't qualify. So I said, well, thank you for your time. I um, hope we serve together one day, but when we do, I'll be in a different uniform. The, the Oh, by the way, I showed up at Wake Forest University having just put on my Navy commander's hat, dress whites, Navy steel patch, badges and beads. And I was getting sworn in to the Army as a second lieutenant by the uh, area's highest ranking Naval officer. And he looks at me and he goes, Bob, you got to be kidding me that I'm going to have to do this. I'm going to turn a Navy commander into an Army second lieutenant. I just can't bring myself to do it, you know, without without really asking you if this is what you want to do. I said, it's what I want to do. And I had checked uh, with my Naval Academy classmates and they said, hey, Bob, go with the Army. They don't send you out to sea on ships as a doctor and the resources are better. And so it turned out to be a really, really good experience for me. Took me a long time to learn how to speak Army, but once I did, it worked out well. So this is the the really small world. We were actually interns together at Madigan Army Medical Center in 1991 how do you think your prior military service as a SEAL in the Navy and the fact that you were a little bit older than most of the crew that showed up, how'd that impact your residency experience? Well, some of the listeners need to know the Madagascar Medical Center has got to be the best training center in all of the military. And they take people like you, Doug, because you're smart. Bing, they get you right in. You know, I was not in that same category. And uh, when what I did, I just tried to push the system because I've been prior military. I know how things get done in the military. And instead of going to one place for my third year rotation, another place for my fourth, I went to Madigan both third and fourth years. And you know, I showed up for the fourth year. The, the family practice chief says, Bob, we already know you. You've already been here. You're supposed to go somewhere else. I see. I get that, sir. But you see, when I fill out my requests for uh, residencies, it's going to say Madigan and kill me, kill me, kill me, kill me. <laughs> okay, good answer. Thank you. But I, I got to tell you how I really did it. Later in my fourth year rotation, I took out some scuba tanks, went down to the Hood Canal outside of Tacoma, Washington, where Madigan is, went diving, filled up a cooler full of Dungeness crab, which is some of the best eating crab in the world, called my uh, chief up and said, chief, you know, you said us medical students could call you if we had a problem. He goes, yes, absolutely. What's the problem? I said, I have a cooler full of Dungeness crab and no place to cook them. And he goes, and when can I expect you? So <laughs> a couple months later, I got my residency. There's where prior military helps. Following your family medicine residency, you went to a clinic job at Fort Bragg, the Army Center of the Universe. What was it like walking around the, the post wearing a SEAL insignia on your Army uniform? Well, it, it was it was a um, a real eye opener all through my three years of residency too, because I'm wearing you know camouflage most of the time and a Navy Seal patch on it, and most people have no idea what that is. And I'd be in a 
mess hall or something. And this guy would come up to me and go, so you want to tell me how that, what that is and how I can get one? <laughs> I go, well, I'll tell you what it is. And I'm pretty sure you can't get one. It was a lot of fun, but the better way to answer your question is, did it cause me any problems? And the answer to that is no. In most cases, it really helped because I showed up for my first duty assignment on Fort Bragg as a brand new doctor. And my Navy SEALs that were there took me free fall parachuting there. You know, doc's going to take care of them. But I hadn't been there three months before I got orders to the stop what I was doing, report to the 82nd Airborne Division and get ready to join 3,500 paratroopers in an invasion of Haiti. And when I showed up, they said, oh, by the way, the commander has picked you to be in jump aircraft number one with him because he saw that Navy SEAL patch on your uniform and he wants you in his airplane. So tell us a little bit about that almost trip to Haiti. Very few people know about this because it was an almost trip. We got locked down with no warning uh, that day and 48 hours later, we're airborne en route to Haiti with 3,500 paratroopers and 64 jump aircraft. Every single air, jump aircraft in the Army and Air Force inventory was parked on Pope Air Force Base. And we're loading full combat load in the rain. We launch. We're two hours out. It's, a, it's either do it at two hours or keep going and jump out and Colin Powell was in Haiti with the president president of Haiti, said, I need to let you know that two hours ago to the 82nd Airborne launch, and they're going to be here in two more. So you've got a choice. You can die when they get here, or you can surrender now. And he surrendered, and they turned us around and brought us back. And I'll tell you what the scariest part about that almost combat mission was. Once they told us we're turning around, which was done with a clipboard passed quietly from jumper to jumper and everything is I had this vision of 64 jump aircraft turning around in the dark in the middle of the night going, oh, Lord, please watch over these boys. So being at Fort Bragg, you know, home of the 82nd Airborne Division, a lot of hard-charging soldiers there. Can you tell us any memorable stories about taking care of those soldiers or maybe their family members? Yeah, I, I was blessed. And my first job uh, in the Army was as a major most doctors graduate med school and are captain. So I had command of clinics as my, my entire career in the Army. I went from command of one clinic to command of another clinic. I had Smoke Bomb Hill Special Forces Clinic to start, then the Family Practice Residency Clinic, and then the 82nd Airborne Division Clinic. And so I was given every opportunity to do what all doctors dream of. Well, at Fort Bragg, you became the command surgeon of the elite U.S. Army Delta Force. What led you to getting that job, and what can you share about that time in your career? What led to it was the Navy SEAL patch on an Army uniform. And there was one other uh, Navy SEAL who was my resident, who was an Army doctor. And um, there's, there's not too many of us, but when I asked him why he was in the Army, he said, I don't like ships. And I said, yeah, that's why I'm here too. But I hadn't been on Fort Bragg in that Smoke Bomb Hill Special Forces Clinic more than a month before they came in. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, Doc, how'd you like to come play with us? We need a new, we need a new command surgeon. And I had, you know, just got out of residency. I had, I had a lot of stuff I needed to learn as a attending physician. I said, no, not now, guys. I've been there, done that. Don't want to play. But you can check back with me in a couple of years and let me know. In almost two years to the day, knock, knock, knock. How about now, Doc? I went, now is actually a good time. I've done the things I wanted to do, and um, I'm looking for a new other adventures. And next thing I know, I was brought in um, as, and this is a title, Command Surgeon of the Army's Delta Force. I was brought in as the senior doc, and I had a doc and a PA and a bunch of medics that worked for me. 
So that's what did it. It was just, we think we do a lot of things that involve guns and it'd be really nice if our doctor, you know, knew how to use a gun too. So I got to do free fall parachuting with them and shooting with them and, you know, training with them. And it was just, just an absolute for four years, the best, best job I've ever had in my life. One of the most stressful too. So can you tell us any clinical or medical stories from places that you never really were? Yes. Speaking of a a place that I never was, Delta Force has to be airborne in four hours from the time your beepers go off. So you're at home and it's beep, 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 beep. And you got to be at the unit and fully loaded, immunizations given on the way in four hours. And this was one of those events that we found ourselves getting our mission briefing on route to a a country that I can reveal in another 40, you know, 37 years. And uh, we came in uh, undercover with fake names on our uniforms, the whole bit. And two things of interest happened. We got, we went into the lockdown and there was a military hospital nearby. And since the mission was going to be that night, I had the CID agents take me to the hospital to brief the hospital commander that there was going to be a mission that night and we might need his services. That's all I could tell him. I walk in the ER and one of my uh, residency classmates goes, Bob, how you doing? Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know if you, <laughs> if you, it was I, this can't really be happening. So I had to go back. I said, I gave her, it was a woman and I gave her a big hug. And I said, look, look at the name on my, on my uniform here. And you know where I'm working right now, I think. So this is the last conversation you and I are going to have. Okay. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Went back to the CID guy. I said, okay, I'm blown. Just in case you wanted to know. He goes, all right, we got you covered, which was kind of, kind of neat. But the, the side part to that is now, now we actually go from there to the briefing and General Shinseki, four-star in Europe at the time, who has an almost photographic memory, brilliant man. And we did a three and a half hour long briefing to him and he gave us the go to, to execute. But after the briefing was over, he said, okay, doc and lawyer over here with me behind closed doors. We went, what, what, what? And uh, he closed the door and he goes, guys, there's two jobs I've never done and never will be able to do. One is the doctor's job and the other is the lawyer's job. And we're about to do things here that might have to be justified in a court of international law at some point in time. So I need to be really clear. I am delegating four-star authority to both of you to stop this mission if we're going to step over that line. Clear? We go, sir. And he walks out and we look at each other and go, holy crap. <laughs> what? <laughs> But, you know, that's that's the sign of a good leader. He knows what he knows and he knows what he doesn't know. And luckily, it was a successful mission and we haven't been to The Hague yet. We all know that those Delta guys are pretty special and they're hard chargers and really don't want to have to slow down. But as the doc, you you have to tell them sometimes, hey, you need to take it easy and relax while you heal. How did that work out sometimes? When I was um, on a um, training mission in our, in our headquarters area, uh, about two o'clock in the morning, I get a call saying, Eagle down, Doc, and it's the commander. He's been shot in the eye. I went, oh, no. You got this vision of a hole in your Delta Force commander's eyeball. And um, I said, can you transport? And Yep. Get him to the clinic right now. And so I'll meet him there. And I had a slit lamp there. And he comes in, his eyes all covered up. We uncover it, look, and there's actually vitreous fluid coming out of a burst fracture his eyeball. I look and I go, all right, two o'clock in the morning, scrambled my ophthalmologist, who I, nice thing about 
that particular job. I had every specialty on call to me whenever I wanted it and limited to, to use them. So the eye doctor meets with me. We look at it and we think you're going to have to sew up the eye. But he, he goes, you know, it's so full of blood. I think it's going to clot off and be fine. Let me just push the pieces back where they're supposed to be. And, you know, we'll tell them to take it easy. So commanding officer goes home. A, a week and a half goes by. And on a Sunday night, he calls me and goes, Doc, I can't see out of that eye again. What? Do you do anything strenuous? No, no. He t- you know, you know, he told you not to do anything strenuous. No, not at all. All right. Meet me in the you know ER. Eye guy comes in again and goes, oh, damn, it, it ble- it's full of blood again. Did you do anything strenuous? No, no. Okay. Well, I don't think I need to operate. Let's just give it a break. And that was, that was <laughs> Sunday night. Monday morning, I go in to check on my boss. And uh, the, com- the commander's secretary, who's been the secretary to a whole lot of Delta Force commanders over the decades that she there. She goes, Doc, can I talk to you for a minute? What? Did, did the commander bunny tell you we went free fall parachuting on Friday? <laughs> he did what? <laughs> I walked into his office. I looked at him. I go, you did what? So these guys are, they, you know, they're invulnerable. They believe they're invulnerable, but every now and then they can still break. Tell us what's unique about being a physician for the Delta force that we may not appreciate for those of us that treat other military populations. Yeah, the biggest difference is unlimited resources absolute unlimited resources. There are two, three that I'm aware of, three organizations in the militaries that have unlimited budgets. One is a nuclear submarine. The other one is SEAL Team 6, which is our Navy equivalent to Delta Force. And the third one is Delta Force. You know, when I showed up on Fort Bragg, commander pulled me in and he goes, Bob, I got a mission for you. And that's why I brought you here. I want you to build the best medical capability in the United States military right here on this compound. And I, I said, yeah, that's going to take some money because you can have anything you want, whenever you want, you just got to have. And oh my God, <laughs> I, I had so much fun. I built a, an expanded clinic. I bought in, a, I built a weapons of mass destruction training program. I brought in a dentist, set up a dental clinic. That dentist, uh, just retired recently as the Surgeon General of the United States Army Dental Corps. And, uh, you know, just you get to meet such great people and you're able to do what you need to do instantly. And I, you know, and I, I literally, just like I called the eye doctor and I said, I need you in the ER in about 30 minutes. And of course he was there because I all that was set up. It's, it's just a unique way to be able to do what you hope to be able to do as a doctor. We did things that are still classified in training that includes surgery in aircraft in the air that includes, you know, where did I learn how to do a Venus cut down? You know, there's a trauma center on Fort Bragg that, that uses some classified training methods that, you know, just you go, wow, I can't believe I'm, I'm learning this. Um, Cause as a family practice doctor, you don't expect to be in a war zone dealing with traumatic amputations, multiple gunshot wounds. You know, I would go down to uh, charity hospital in new Orleans every six months and and do nothing but gunshot wounds because they get 10 or 12 a night, every single night in charity. It's like, come on guys, let's go do gunshots. And it was pretty impressive. So one of the things that, that struck me that you said when, you know, a leader of one of the units that you were with came to you and said, Hey, I've done every job on the staff in this unit, except yours. And so they didn't expect to be able to do your job, but as a doctor, what kind of stuff did the operators expect you to be able to do if it really hit the fan? 
after I had been there a couple of years and we worked very, very hard to train all of my medics, 18 Delta medics to be the best that they could be, that they could, you know, they can deliver babies and they could, you know, do minor surgeries or relatively major surgeries. You know, they came to me and said, you know, doc, it occurs to us that if we end up being the casualty on one of these missions, because there might only be one medic with a with a uh, operational unit in the field, he says, they don't, we don't have anybody to take care of us. Would it be okay with you if we trained the, the operators to do what we do, at least in the airway, breathing, circulation, basic soldier care? I said, oh yeah, absolutely, go do it. Brilliant idea. And so we, with commander's permission, started training all of the operators in addition to incredible amount of training they do to be very, very good at what they do. And, and by that, I can, I, I want to give you a simple statement. They can do things with guns that can't be done. And I, I'm saying that as a Navy SEAL, I've never seen a Navy SEAL do what they do. It's, you just did what? And, and, and they're just that good because they train all the time, every single day to do what they do. The reason I tell that particular story is that a year after I left the unit, a 600-pound bomb was dropped onto friendly troops in Iraq, and the two most severely wounded Delta Force operators were my two medics, and the the, uh, <laughs> the operators saved their life. And, and it was a good year uh, after I had left, and the sergeant major of the command came and found me. I was back at the 82nd Airborne Division Clinic at the time, and he says, hey, doc, come here. I need to tell you something. Remember that program you started when you were here? Well, it just saved your two medics' lives. <laughs> That's, yeah, thank you very much. That's something I'll, I'll never forget. You later deployed to Iraq with the 82nd Airborne Division in 2003. What was your role in that deployment? And tell us about some of the things you encountered. I went with the uh, 7, 7, 82nd Medical Company to Havania, which is an old bombed out airfield in the very beginning of the 2003 war. Literally I had to take over a bombed out stone building and put windows and doors in it and get ready to receive casualties and keep, provide mass casualty care with you know, 130 degree heat without any air conditioning or electricity. And the, the beauty of being a doctor in the military is they need us badly, almost as much as they need bullets. And so, you know, I said, told them what we needed and the division scrambled and got it to us and we were able to open up that clinic. And I had three doctors and few PAs and a bunch of medics working for me. And uh, we built we built a clinic in Havania that was up and operational, functional, and we got the first power and we got the first uh, air conditioning probably about a month after we got there. It was doing well and sadly had a number of um, casualties and mass casualties that we had to deal with, but best of my knowledge, no, no deaths, including a, an enemy combatant that came to us in the middle of the night who we saved. I'm going to fast forward to what else happened in Iraq. And because I was a colonel, I was the senior officer in my area, and I was able to get things done just by asking. But I get a call from Baghdad after I've been there four months, I guess, saying, come to Baghdad. We need a colonel up here. Take over a $250,000 grant from the Agency for International Development to uh, teach the doctors of uh, Iraq what's changed in the last 25 years. Because under Saddam Hussein, the doctors had not been allowed to leave the country. There weren't any medical books. They taught the Socrates method at the bedside. And because they couldn't leave the country and there was no internet, they had no idea that the world had changed. Uh, the medical world had changed. And they were still practicing medicine very, very well, but the way we all did it 25 years before. So when you realize that the docs there are 
way behind on medical knowledge. And you've got the USAID there saying, hey, here's some cash, make something happen. What were you able to do? Two things that, that really jumped out at me. As soon as we, we arrived and we brought peace to the area, doctors were all over us asking questions, wanting help. And I remember early on, a cardiothoracic surgeon came to me and asked me, how do you treat asthma? And, you know, and I told him about albuterol and steroids and inhales. And he, he looks at me and goes, no, that's not right. Really? Why not? Well, no, you use IV theophylline, which uh, we had long since learned is a potentially fatal treatment for asthma. And I go, that didn't work for you real well, does it? No, but, and we fixed that. And, and the other one was, as a dinner with a psychiatrist. And I said, I got to ask you, you know, 100,000 soldiers under Saddam Hussein have, have just gone to war and not come home. You must be dealing with a great deal of depression and anxiety. And he goes, oh my gosh, yes, all the time. I said, well, what do you treat it with? Because he had never heard of Prozac. He'd never heard of, a, of an SSRI or the, you know, the drugs that we all use now. So so effectively, and he goes, well, we'll use Haldol, which is a very powerful sedative antipsychotic medic. And I went, well, you, you do what? <laughs> does it work? He goes, no, not really, but it does alleviate the symptoms somewhat. <laughs> and then I told him about Prozac and he goes, can I get some for my wife, please? Just amazing, the stuff you get to see. It was amazing because it had already just started when I got there. Uh, so, and what we did is we flew in 32 doctors from United States and Great Britain across all medical specialty. And we said, I'm going to do a four-day conference and you're going to teach and record on a CD, the doctors of Iraq, what's changed in the last 25 years. And it's exactly what we did. The, oh, by the way, part of that story was the about three days before our four-day conference was, conference was to begin, which we had been advertising on the new internet that had arrived in Iraq. I get a call from a doctor in Jordan saying, my, my uh, family has half good guys and half bad guys, but the bad guys tell me they're going to blow up your conference and all the doctors in it, 400 Iraqi doctors. You're a perfect target. I went, oh, no. So I went to the two-star general in charge and I said, sir, I got a problem here. We were going to do this conference downtown Baghdad in a place that we had just spent $200,000 redoing. And now if we do that, we're all going to die. And he goes, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to bring everybody into the green zone. I'm going to need a bunch of buses, a platoon of Marine security guys, and you're going to need to clean out the big conference areas here, cancel whatever's there for four days and give it to me. And so he calls his staff in. He goes, can we do that, guys? And they, they looked him in. Yes, sir, we can. And we did a bait and switch. All the, all the doctors showed up downtown. We put them in buses, searched and transported them into, into the green zone and held that conference. And, you know, I'll never forget it. For four days, every Iraqi doctor there would find one of us just to come and hug us and cry on our shoulders and thank, for, thank us for their freedoms and America for what it's doing for their country. And, you know, you didn't see that very much in the news, but it happened every day. And I'm still in contact with a number of those doctors that are in the United States doing their advanced residencies, helping their own country back. It, it's, it's astounding. So I know that early in the war in 2003, lots of crazy things were going on. And, you know, that wasn't limited to non-medical things. Were there any crazy stories when you were in Hamania that, you know, you three said, man, that was wild. Most of the 
stories of my time in Havania that were wild, you know, were very sad and very war focused. You know, we had a we had a helicopter uh, get shot down not far from my clinic that had uh, is a CH forty seven, one of the big boys that had like fifty soldiers in it on their way to Kuwait to go home for their mid tour leave and and I had to launch my entire clinic and all my medics there to try to save the lives of those that didn't die in the crash. It was just horrible. And the reason I even mention it is that's when my 18-year-old medics became men. You know, they they come back with that thousand mile stare and dust and dirt and blood on them and look at me and go, that's not what I thought this job was going to be. And you know, it's just amazing what we ask our young soldiers to do and and they do it. I already told you about an event where an enemy combatant came in to my clinic in the middle of the night by ambulance because it was rare, but it was raining that day and the helos couldn't move. And I know I, I get a call that there's an enemy combatant coming with an amputation, multiple gunshot wounds, and I had to do an ambulance transfer to get him to the surgeons three and a half hours away. And um, there's a chapter in my book called My Hero, and this is that story. I, when I, I called up to my staff and I said, I need another doctor and medic here. And the whole staff came, including my pediatrician, then Captain, now Colonel Craig Dobson. And we received this disaster of a patient who had tried to attack our headquarters and had been shot. And um, we're Americans. We're not going to save lives. And it was our job to do that. We couldn't get an IV in because he bled out so much. And I had to do a venous cut down on his ankle which I had only done on animals to uh, find an IV access and get fluid going and get him out of there, which we did. The reason I tell you this story, the reason it's called my hero is my pediatrician who also couldn't get an IV in came to me and said, I have to go on the ambulance transfer because the medic doesn't know how to draw up morphine. And he's so scared. His hands are shaking. I need to go. And it was against the rules. And I said, you know, come on, Captain, you're putting me in a big spot here. But he just told me, he said, Bob, you got to let me go. I said, all right, you're gonna, you and I are both going to get in trouble. You go ahead. Unbeknownst to me, and I didn't find this out until I actually wrote the chapter on what he did, is it was a three and a half hour ambulance transfer with 82nd Airborne Armored Vehicles on either side of the ambulance if he went the safe route. But he went to the convoy uh, commanding uh, Lieutenant Colonel said, I need to drive these guys right through bad guy country at high speed. It's dark, it's raining. They won't expect it. We can save this guy if you let me do it because I'll be there in 40 minutes. Otherwise, he ain't going to make it. And and that young captain drove right through the middle of bad guy country at high speed, saved that soldier. And hopefully one day he'll tell another generation of Iraqis about nice Americans. So you mentioned a book and, and you've written and published several books that are currently available at major booksellers and on Amazon. And and the one that you're talking about is called Swords and Saints, A Doctor's Journey. And that includes your experiences in medical school, then as a doctor in the military, as well as the civilian sector. What led you to write that book? My, my first book uh, called Six Days of Impossible is about my Navy SEAL training and then the actual men who did it. It's a nonfiction story of why 11 out of 70 men made it through hell week, five days, no sleep, soaking wet, freezing cold for six days. And I was a doctor looking back to try to figure out why us. There were 70 of us that were pre, pre-vetted, good enough shape, but only 11 made it. And I just said, I got to write this down. So I interviewed all my guys. I found out what the common theme was. And I told their individual stories and tied it all together into a story that just had to be told so that people you know, could learn from our own experiences that most SEALs didn't know and the, the Navy SEAL organization didn't know. But 
because I had the unique ability to look back as a physician, I figured out. So I wrote that book because it had to be told. And it's now mandatory reading in a number of SEAL training program. Read this, understand what you're up against and see how to succeed. So same concept applies to book number two, because I just published it last year and I was in the process winding down from full-time practice to part-time. And I had been telling all these stories over the years of fantastic patient experiences in peace, in war, at medical school, you know, learning to be a good doctor, which takes years and years and years, far, as you know, Doug, far after, you know, med school and residency. And I said, you know, if I just retire and walk away and never write these stories down, they'll die with me. So that was the motivation. I just won chapter at a time, one story at a time, I started writing down these stories. And eventually, you know what? I looked at it and went, hey, I got a book here. <laughs> so that's what did it. With all that clinical experience that you have, tell us what advice you would give to a 20-year-old college student who was interested in medicine and was contemplating whether or not the military was their pathway. I will tell you this, the military programs that you both, both are familiar with uh, train the best doctors in the world, bar none. There's no comparison to the civilian doctors that I've run into in you know, most specialty, primary care particularly. I can't say that about the surgical specialty. But in the military, we have a great advantage over civilian world in that we don't have to buy malpractice. Because if you want to sue us, you get to sue the uh, United States government. So there's nobody telling you what you can and cannot do and what you ha- how to practice medicine, what medicines you can give. There's a, you know, just, just such a, a free, totally supportive, well-funded environment that doctors get to be what they, what they always wanted to be. And, you know, when I retired, having delivered hundreds of babies and watched them all grow up, I was told by my civilian malpractice insurer, well, you can't do that anymore. Add $100,000 to your malpractice insurance if you want to deliver one baby. So what I would tell people is if you want to get an affordable medical education, take one of the military scholarships, go become the best doctor you can be, and then decide whether you want to stay for the long term or not. A lot of doctors do, a lot of doctors don't, but all of them, when they enter into the next phase of their doctor career, they discover they're about as good as they can be. So what do you see as the biggest challenge that's facing the military and particular military medicine today? Well, yeah, the biggest one, I actually commented this on the Mil- Military Officers Association magazine, the Congress is looking at replacing uniformed doctors with civilian doctors. And that is a uh, recipe for absolute disaster. And it hasn't happened. The more they look at it, the more I think it won't happen. But when you look at military medicine, you have you realize, you know, our doctors go to, go to war, go to sea, go up in the airplanes with the uh, soldiers and sailors. And you can't, you really can't take a union civilian doctor and send them to Iraq or put them on a ship at sea, couldn't afford the overtime. Big, the big challenges ahead are, will doctors get sucked up into the military drawdown that's that's trying to happen right? I just hope that common sense will eventually prevail. Following your military career, you then went on to establish a very successful civilian practice and then retired. What are you doing now? Well, I got bored in retirement and I just started going back to work, you know, because I finished my third book, which you didn't ask me about yet, but I'll tell you anyway, was my, uh, I inherited 230 letters from my great, great granddad from the Civil War when he was a corporal in General Grant's headquarters. So I spent kind of the last year and a half putting that together into a 
a marvelous 600-page transcription of all those letters built with the history of the Civil War, because these letters go from 1861 to 1865. But then when I got it done, and it got just published last month, actually, the uh, you know I kind of looked around and go, what now? And my wife goes, you know, you can't go fishing every day. <laughs> so I have um, decided to go back to work and help out part-time in one of the local clinics, which is, which is kind of fun. Was there any medical stories that were written from that time period? So, yeah. And again, I'm, I, I edited the, this by transcribing the letters, but yeah, there's plenty of medical stories built into the letters that he writes home to his wife. These are all letters home to his wife. And there's, uh, he talks about the doctors that he's dealing with. He talks about the good ones and he talks about the bad ones. And what I did is the online version has a link to every single name and place that's, that he mentions in his letters. So you can look at him. One of them happens to be a doctor that won the Medal of Honor during the Civil War. And he's, and I read my, you know, my great, great granddad's comments. going, you know, this is a really good doctor. Everybody likes this guy. <laughs> Long, you know, before he won the Medal of Honor for, for being a doctor in the front lines in combat. So you see stuff like that. And he mentions a lot of disease, you know, Civil War, uh, Viet, all, Civil War all the way to the Vietnam War, there was probably as many or more disease-related injuries and death than there were, you know, combat-related death. And he talks about, you know, burying soldiers and having getting malaria and, you know, all the diarrheas. And he just, he talks. There's, he talks about the hospitals, the patients in the hospitals, going to visit the people in the hospital, being a patient himself in the hospitals and the treatments that the doctors had to do. So it's, it's you know, you can't be uh, telling a story about war without talking about something. Better. So it's funny that you mentioned, you know, one of the things that really propelled you to write books is that you just felt like you had to keep those stories alive somehow. And that's really part of our mission here at Wardox is to, you know, get some of these stories from these healthcare heroes and and hopefully that will preserve that oral history. And we'd like to ask our guests if this gets unearthed somehow in, you know, a time capsule in a hundred years, what do you want to tell your family of the future about your career, especially the military medical career that you had? You know, it's interesting we are seeing fewer and fewer and fewer children choose military as a career. And, you know, if I were to wonder how many in my family might want to know about my time, 36 years in, you know, two services, 18 in the Army and 18 in the Navy, not a lot of them might might really want to know. I hope, you know, I hope there's somebody like me that will try to preserve the Civil War history and but I, you know, when when you gave me a heads up, you might ask that question. I just came up with the idea, you know, bury in Ar- bury me in Arlington with the rest of my family because people that go there, they look and they think. And I just came back from burying my uncle there, and he he is the youngest of five generations that my father, my grandfather, my great grandfather, my great great grandfather all buried in the same section up there. And my hope is that there'll still be room for me when I get there. We've been speaking with retired Army Colonel Bob Adams. Bob, thanks for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And and really, thank you for your service to our nation. It's been great to talk to you. Hey, Doug, thank you for yours. And it was a blessing. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.